together on this uh, beautiful morning. Snow, I hope you enjoy at least some of the decoration of the snow. Um, I don't know if you've thought at times, I've thought about it at times, like God could have chosen another color, like gray, you know, for snow, but he chose white in the wintertime. And uh, I think that's part of his goodness to us. So um, I, I love the beauty of this. Well, we, um, we are continuing in our series on Advent, and so I'm going to light the candles. This is the fourth Sunday in Advent, and uh, this is a way for us to worship the Lord and consider just the wonder of the good news, taking time in each of these four themes. So today, we're going to talk about joy. The pink candle represents joy, um, and of course, Christmas is coming this next weekend, so we'll have Christmas Eve and, uh, at 5, Christmas Day at 11. And then Sunday after that, to come together to worship as well. So um, I hope you can make one of those Christmas Eve services. The Lord bless you as you go to different places. But this morning I want to talk about joy. Um, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. So you can be turning there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one in your hand. Uh, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will give you a Bible to use while you're here. Um, Christmas is a time when we think of joy. It's natural to think about joy at Christmas time. We're supposed to think about joy at Christmas time. I think for children, it's kind of the connection is obvious, uh, the joy of opening gifts when you're a kid. And I'm sure uh, many of us have nice memories of that. And, and then you learn as you get older, the joy of giving. It actually is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and uh, I love giving and watching uh, my children and now grandchildren uh, enjoy those gifts. And so joy is a natural part of Christmas time, and yet um, it comes with other emotions as well, even for children. There's just the reality of the, the joy, yes, of Christmas morning, but they have to wait for that, and the, the angst of that, waiting for the day to arrive, the, the frustration and so forth, is part of their mixed emotions. Uh, as a kid, actually, I remember um, where I went with that is uh, we were told on Christmas morning that we couldn't get up uh, before a certain time. Uh, we had to wait, and my parents didn't want us to wake them up. In order to get downstairs, we had to walk past their door and then go down the stairs, and we lived in an older house, and so the floorboards would creak. Um, and so even though our parents said, don't get up until we're up, well, that was, you know, we were so eager to see the gifts. So we actually made a map, I wish I still had it, a map of where all the creaky floorboards were so we could sneak past my parents to get down there early on Christmas morning. Um, and yeah, that, that's a little insight into what I was like as a kid. Um, but it was that, you know, it's that, that tension. And, and for us, uh, it can be that, but it can be something more poignant than just the impatience and waiting. Uh, if you've lived long enough, the joy of Christmas can be mixed with other things that can be much more intense than just impatience. Uh, the reality of living in a world that is short on joy and long on suffering can take its toll. The trials of life, the loss of loved ones, the pain of evil can seem to press in on us in a more intense way at Christmas time because it's that time we're supposed to be full of joy and yet we're aware that it evades us, and there are other things alongside joy distracting and taking us away from this uh, emotion we think we ought to have. Well, our passage today, like God's Word, of course, right? Our passage today addresses this reality. It addresses the reality, the call to joy. 
but also the reality of trials. And it puts them alongside each other in a way that I think you'll find is uh, quite amazing and is to shape us and change us so that we can find joy, true joy. We can truly rejoice even in our trials. That's the truth of God's word, I think. That's the truth of this passage. So let's pray and ask God to teach us about this in a way that it's not just here. That's the where it starts for sure, but it's something in our hearts, it's something in our lives, that, and something that we would experience even today and even this season. I think we all need to know how to navigate this reality together. So let's ask God for help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you understand these realities. You understand the, the reason for joy. We read the Christmas story. We see the angels rejoicing with the joy of heaven over the birth of the Savior, Christ the Lord. And yet also your word addresses the reality of, of hardship and oppression and trials. And Lord, you have all the truth we need in you and through your word, your living word. It's your word. And you speak to us and you help us in these things. So I pray, Lord, help me to teach well, to serve you well, Lord, and to serve your precious people, to serve everyone here as we, I teach and proclaim this truth. Help us to hear and Holy Spirit, give us power to absorb and be transformed by your word today, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 3 into verse 9. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God's word from 1 Peter chapter 3. I just want to take time to walk through this passage. The core lesson here is, is we are invited by God to a joy inexpressible amidst our trials. We are invited by God to a joy inexpressible amidst our trials. So we're just going to walk through it and learn this truth. So Peter starts out in this first section, verses 1 through 6, to speak of the things in which you rejoice. So verse 6 is where he says that. In this you rejoice. And he's referring to what he's been saying in the previous five verses. It's important, I think, to understand some things that Peter is doing here. Um, just to notice what he's doing in this letter. He's writing to a people who are struggling. He's writing to a people who are dealing with some very serious trials. It was a time in history where to be a Christian uh, would mean that your life was endangered. That your job was endangered that your relationships with your family and neighbors were uh, greatly endangered. 
And, and there were different ebbs and flows of this, and there have been throughout history, and there is right now for many believers. Very serious trials of persecution. That's what was going on on top of the normal trials of life. So he's writing this to the believers in, in the region of uh, Asia Minor, uh, and, and he's helping them understand how to navigate. And he has the audacity in these verses to call them to rejoice and to speak of rejoicing. These are people who are suffering. These are people who are undergoing great hardship. But notice what he does. He doesn't start out in this paragraph saying, guys, I know things are hard. Let's talk about the persecution you're going through. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk even about the people that he's writing to. He doesn't talk about the government and its oppression. He doesn't talk about the problems of the economy. He doesn't even talk about the devil or, or the patriarchs of the faith or any of those other things. He starts right away saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He focuses on God. He draws their attention first and foremost to God and what God has done and what God is doing. This is so insightful for us, for those of us, all of us at times, struggle with trials and hardships, to recognize what Peter's doing and how instructive it is for us that we would understand that when we're in trials, the very best thing for us to do is to not focus on the trial itself, to not focus on our sufferings, not focus on how we feel. Those things are all important. That's part of, a part of what Peter's going to address and the word addresses. But to first and for, foremost, focus on God and who he is and what he's done. And so Peter is calling them to do that, and, and God, through that, is teaching us this important lesson. That the power to rejoice amidst our trials comes from focusing not on ourselves and our situations, but on God and God's activity. And that's what he does here. He highlights God's activity. He praises God. He worships God. This is a, a, a phrase that speaks of worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, he's calling them to worship. Let's remember who he is and what he's done. Let's worship. Worship is therapy for the oppressed soul. And that's what Peter's doing here. And he speaks of what God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This great God that we know, according to his great mercy, has granted us new life. He has caused us to be born again, to be born anew to a living hope. He has caused us to have life where there was death before. He has given us this life this abundant life from him, the infinite God of the universe has been at work in your life, giving you new life. He himself, the most important and glorious being that ever will be beyond our understanding or imagination, he himself has taken an interest in you. And he has caused you, not yourself, not your circumstances, not the guy that shared the gospel with you, he himself, God himself, has caused you to be born again, to give you new life, to be born new. He has been at work in your life in this amazing, miraculous way. Remember that. Rejoice in that. And, and how was it done? It was according to his great mercy. This glorious God has given you life. He, he has 
cause that seed of the word in your life to, to, to sprout and to, to come alive. And he's done it according to his great mercy. It isn't just his mercy, it's his great mercy. It's his immeasurable mercy. It's his, it's his mercy beyond understanding. It's his mercy that comes from the depths of his being. His mercy is from who he is. It isn't a concession merely to our sinfulness. Mercy is at the core of God's character. That's how he describes himself when Moses asks him to show him his glory. He describes himself as a merciful God. This is who he is at the core. And his mercy is great. And it alone bridges the infinite gap between his perfect glory and goodness and our rebellion against such perfect glory and goodness. That's an infinite gap because he is worthy of everything. And when we rebel and turn against him in our sin, it's infinitely evil because it's against God who is infinitely good and glorious. And his great mercy not treating us as our sins deserve, pouring out grace and love and affection and rescue on undeserving people. His great mercy is what's led him to cause you to be born anew. This is who God is. This is what he's been doing. And we don't understand the depths of his mercy. His mercy is great, but it only takes a speck of understanding of his mercy, I think, to transform our lives from lives full of gratitude and joy at the wonder that he would forgive me my sins. He would love me so much to send his son to die in my place, to pay for my sins and to satisfy righteousness, that he would do this for me, the sinner. It only takes a speck of understanding to fill us with joy at that reality that he's given us new life according to his great mercy. And we're born again to a living hope. It's not a, pl a plausible hope. It's not a potential hope. It's not a theoretical hope. It's not a wishful thinking sort of hope. This isn't Linus waiting for the great pumpkin. It isn't uh, Santa Claus story that you find out is there's more to the story. I won't say more for the little ones here. It's, uh, it's not the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. This is a living hope. It's a living hope. It's alive. And it's connected here. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So who is the living hope? Jesus. Risen from the dead. That is the guarantee of this hope. It's a living hope. It's active hope. It's real. It's risen from the dead. It's already happened. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of what awaits you. It has already happened. He's already victorious. He's reigning. He's working his will. He will return. It's a guarantee. His resurrection is this, this linchpin of the Christian faith that guarantees that our faith is not wishful thinking. It's reality. And you've been born again to a living hope. It's Jesus. You have hope because he has been raised from the dead. He is alive. He has conquered. It isn't wishful thinking. It's real. It's sure. And it's greater than anything you'll ever face in this life. He's been raised from the dead. He is victorious over sin 
in death, the most powerful thing in the whole universe is Christ's resurrection. Because it's in that resurrection, through his death, through his resurrection, through his vindication, and all that comes with it, that God turns the world right side up. The whole world. The world has fallen under sin and darkness, and yet Christ has conquered the world, and he's been raised from the dead. He's victorious over sin and death. And through his resurrection, there is power to change everything. It is the most powerful thing in all the universe. Jesus is alive forevermore, conquering sin and death. The universe has a lot of power in it. We see powerful things. I was just reading about supernovas. Um, that's when a star implodes, when Sorry, I'm going to go a little geeky here, but when there's fusion of heavy elements, not just hydrogen going on, so there's this amazing power in the, in the, in the, the star, and then it implodes and it explodes. Supernovas are incredibly powerful. If our sun did supernova, it would vaporize us, actually. It would vaporize, like, the whole planet, potentially the, all the matter on Earth as well. It would just vaporize it. And yet the creation is a creation by God. And the Word of God teaches us that the, the, the power, the most powerful thing, ultimately is Christ being raised from the dead. And so this is a living hope in the greatest power there is. He has risen. He's alive. He's conquered. He's greater than anything in the, all the universe. If we could harness the power of a supernova, just think what we'd, we'd, we could do and how we'd feel about it. Oh, and you know, this... this endless energy source. We have something greater than an endless energy source. We have our living hope. Jesus risen from the dead. Peter wants to focus our attention on that. And he goes on. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. So you have been given this new life. It's a living hope. It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's to an inheritance. It, you are receiving something an inheritance, something, something that is given to descendants, something earned ultimately by Jesus himself. And through Jesus, we receive reward to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is a, an inheritance that will never, never diminish, never be corrupted, will last forever. Unfading, undefiled, imperishable. This inheritance that that will remain. Everything else will ultimately fade away, ultimately be judged, but the inheritance will last forever. It's a final inheritance secured by Jesus. Peter is perhaps thinking as a Jew about some of the blessings that they have had received in the Old Covenant, the land of Israel, and what they had received, but, but the history, their history shows that that inheritance was defiled by sin. It faded in glory, and it was taken from them. But now in Jesus, there is a eternal, undefiled, imperishable, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. It is kept in heaven for you. God has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that he keeps for you. He is faithful to keep it. He is the one who guards it. That word keep is, is also translated guard. 
And so God himself is guarding your inheritance. No better guard to have than God himself. No more secure place to invest than in the things that God protects and guards. Life can be unstable. Riches can come and go. Health can come and go. This world doesn't offer us that sort of stability or that sort of security. And that's part of the trials of life is when we bump into that reality, right? We feel that and we feel destabilized because things we trusted and, and, and relied upon and enjoyed, and they might be legitimate good things, all of a sudden are no longer there. We feel destabilized in that. But this world is passing. This world is unstable. The, the good things of this life do fade. They do perish. They do get defiled. And yet God keeps an inheritance for you that will never undergo any of those things. He is guarding that for you. He is guarding the things he has for you. And they will be protected and they will endure. That's good news. That's reason to rejoice. That's, that's truth to help us think beyond this life and the instability of this life to realize that there's a stable place. God himself is guarding our inheritance, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's interesting to note there that, that this inheritance and you are guarded through faith. God is doing the guarding. He's guarding your inheritance, but he's guarding you. He's guarding you to get you to the end, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is guarding you to get you to the place, to the end of all this, to the last time. We're still on point one, sorry. Um, faith is the agency of this. And God's the one who keeps you through faith. Faith is ultimately a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Your faith didn't come from yourself. Yes, you exercise faith, and you do exercise faith, but faith doesn't come from you. This is a gift of God. God grants faith to you. Now, at that moment, maybe when you first had genuine faith, you weren't aware of that happening. But that is the testimony of Scripture. That is what we're seeing here in this passage as well. He has given you faith. He has given you this ability to put your faith in His Word. Now, all humans have faith, by the way, and that's a whole other discussion. Everybody has to put their faith in something based on what they think is the best place to put it. Everyone does that, so don't let anyone say, well, you have faith, I have fact. Well, no, that's not how it works. Everybody has to operate by faith. Um, but the, the faith the genuine faith that God gives is, is a faith beyond that. It's an ability to place your faith in Christ, to place your faith in these things, to believe these things, though you may not see them, as true and to receive them for yourself. It's like a seventh sense, really, for us that we receive from God. God grants this ability to see and perceive in ways that we wouldn't naturally. And he's the one who keeps that. That's what this passage is teaching us. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. He is keeping faith working in your life. And you might be thinking, like, it's not working too good. But you know what? It only takes faith the size of a mustard seed. Just a, a barely visible present 
amount of faith is all it takes because the power is not in the faith. The power is in the object of the faith. And all you need is enough to connect yourself to Jesus. And that's where the infinite power is. So you don't need, a, you know, you don't need a lot of faith. You just need enough to say, help me, Jesus. I trust in you. Help me in my unbelief. That's sufficient faith. And even that little bit of faith is a gift from God, and it's something he guards. This idea of faith being like a seventh sense makes me think of um, cochlear implants. I don't know uh, if you guys know about that. Maybe someone here has a cochlear implant. It's a technology they developed where uh, for people that are hearing impaired, um, they, they put an implant in the cochlear part of your ear, which is where the sound gets translated into electrical signals. So they put this implant there, and then on the outside they have microphones and all electronic conditioning that goes on. And it's wonderful, actually. I, I spent probably a half hour <laughs> watching the videos of people hearing for the first time. Uh, it's so wonderful. And I just, yeah, I did cry. I just was like rejoicing with them. It was so wonderful. But, uh, so that's a picture from a, a girl who's hearing for the first time um, after her implant. Uh, but that's how faith is. That's what the Lord does in our life. There's a point in our lives where we don't hear him. We may kind of hear the truth, but it doesn't get in there. And he reaches out in his amazing mercy and love and power and grants us faith so that we start to hear and realize this is true. He did die for me. He did rise from the dead. And I want to follow him. I want to turn away from that other stuff and put my faith in him. He's the one who's done that. And he's the one who will keep you in faith. And it's for salvation to be revealed. The king will return. The books will be opened. Destinies will be complete. All things will be renewed. And we will know a rest and a joy and a bliss and a glory that make the very best joys and peace of this world seem like distant, vague impressions compared to the depth of wonder that we will experience in that final salvation, in that final kingdom, in that ultimate inheritance. And so Peter focuses on these things as he starts out because he wants them to ground themselves in this. And God wants us to ground ourselves in these greater realities. These greater realities that, that give us power to look past the difficulties. To have strength in the difficulties. To realize that, that there will be a time when there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. We'll understand. We'll say yes and amen and enjoy all the glory of the Lord, all that he has for us in that eternal salvation. And yet now we, have, we are the recipients of these things and now we are guarded by him. He's with us. And Peter wants to focus there. But he also knows that there's a reality. And so he says in verse 6, this is our next point, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so in these things you rejoice, though now, for a little while, you have been grieved, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he acknowledges the those, there are, the, there are these qualifiers in life, trials, and he's going to go on later, there's other those, though you have not seen him, you, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And so there are difficulties in this life that Peter acknowledges, and yet he 
takes this, these truths and, and turns them upside down than how we might understand them otherwise. He says that we've been grieved by various trials, um, if necessary, for a little while. It's interesting it says, if necessary. That can also be translated as, since necessary, or as necessary. And what Peter is saying is that there is this necessity of trials in this life. He's not trying to say, well, for some of you, they're necessary. <laughs> you know, you, you need a little extra help, so we'll give you a trial. Uh, he means, for all of us, they are necessary. The Son himself, Jesus himself, had to suffer. So, this necessary qualifier is everybody. And the point is that these are not random. These are not unnecessary things. These are not things that, that you know, we can just get rid of and have the same experience. That's what Peter's saying. These are necessary things. These are necessary to God's plan. These are necessary for the reasons he's going to talk about. God is in control. And that is so important to understand. Trials are not random. They come with a purpose and a reason. They're overseen by God. And he designs the trial. Now God does not gladly give out trials. He is not careless or capricious. But he is good and wise. And yet these trials grieve us, Peter acknowledges. You've been grieved. Trials are grieving. They wouldn't be trials if they weren't, right? Trials present things, obstacles in life, the loss of things. They may involve things that are evil and destructive. We may suffer in trials because we're abused or harmed. God's never the author of such things, but he's able to use those things for good even great good. The thing itself is still evil and still destructive, and yet God is able to use even the worst sorts of things for great good. That's what he did in his son's life. Trials can involve things that are difficult or uncomfortable, things we don't prefer, things that run against the ideal, the, the design of creation and, and the destination of creation, things like sickness and poverty Loss of loved ones, loneliness, or trials, and they grieve us. Such things grieved Jesus, too. Being like Jesus doesn't mean you're free from grief. Because you, like he, are human and live in a broken world. And trials grieve us. But there are truths that, that shape how we understand trials and actually give us the ability to rejoice in trials that Peter's going to get to. So, though for a little while, that's another whole idea, that just a little while, they're temporary, they're not eternal, they're just short. And in the grand scheme of things, we'll realize that was just a short amount of time. I, I like what Luther says, where he talks about this reality that, that when we get to heaven, we're going to be like, I, I wish I had more because that was just such a short time and, and they had such an effect in my life. Oh, oh that I had had more trials. And it's hard to imagine saying that. But it is just a little while and it is grieving. But then the purpose, so that your tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose in these trials. There's a point in these trials. 
And, and, and it lies in how Peter says here that, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested. The use of that word tested is important to understand. It can be translated proven, and it connects to the word for uh, prove or improve. And we know that because of the language study, but also by the example that Peter uses, gold. That perishes, though it is tested by fire. What, is, what goes on when gold is tested by fire? Well, they heat it up. It goes through fire. It goes through something hot. It goes through a trial. And in that, the dross comes out. And you improve the gold. It's tested in that way. It's improved. The dross comes out and it's removed. And so that what remains is proven to be true gold. And so there's this improve and prove aspect of this testing. And that's what Peter's getting at. And that is an important truth in trials to understand that God has designed our trials to improve and prove us. To improve who we are, to remove the dross, and to prove who we are, that there's genuine faith there. That's what's going on in trials. And, and the result here, right, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who's being praised? What glory and what honor is going on there? Well, certainly it is all going to go to Jesus and through Jesus to the Father. But he's speaking of you. He's speaking about that final day and you being the one who is honored and rewarded for your life. So, Think of, the, think of what's being said here. Trials are designed by him to improve the gold of genuine faith in you. To remove the dross. Now, how do, how do trials do that? Well, what, what trials tend to do is they press us. They press us to feel the extremities of our need and our weakness. And in that place, you need something to stand on. And what happens in trials is you realize nothing else works here. And those things that I'm used to relying on, they don't work in this, ex this extreme trial. I've tried those things. And, and what I need is Jesus. I need to experience him. I need his power. I need to be reminded of my forgiveness and of, my, of his love for me. I need the blessing of his people coming around. I need Jesus. And so we put away those other things, those lesser things. They, may, they don't necessarily have to be sinful things, but lesser things. That's part of what's going on. To, to realize, ultimately, it's from Him that I live. And so our faith is improved in that. We grow and we realize, you know what? He can actually meet me in that thing that I feared so much. That worst scenario that I always struggled with. I had it and He met me in it. And He's greater than that scenario. That's your faith being improved. And that's a good thing because the result is reward. When you go through the trial and you struggle like that and you feel like a total failure but you're still hanging on and you're learning about His power to be there for you and to, to deliver you, that's a glorious thing. And there'll be reward in heaven. There'll be glory and honor. Jesus will say, well done. I know it was hard, but well done. And that glory will shine forever. That's what's going on in, in the trial. And the other part of it, it's being proven. So that on the final day, it'll be clear to everybody, this is a genuine believer. Look 
how they responded to these trials versus all the other options, all the other things they did, could have done, maybe used to do. They hung on, they believed, they were faithful, they overcame in me, depending on me. And so trials are used to improve and prove our faith, resulting in eternal reward and glory. And so this turns the perspective of trials that, that our world, that our culture has, upside down or right side up. And so Peter is addressing, calling us to a joy that's based on the blessings we have that are sure, but also based on the trials that we have, recognizing that our trials get redeemed in Christ. And so now we have a, a, a perspective, a truth to actually find joy even in our trials. Not despite our trials, but in our trials, because the trials are creating eternal reward. They are proving and improving our faith. And so Peter's buddy James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. God is at the, about the work of improving your faith and increasing your capacity for Him. Improving your faith and proving it as well. And then to finish, I don't know how it got to be 11, 15. But, um, final point, joy inexpressible filled with glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There's so many things I'd like to say here. He grants us this faith that doesn't need to see. Peter got to see. Peter experienced Jesus firsthand, but Peter is saying, you don't need to have seen. Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You don't need to see him physically because faith from the Spirit of God is at work in your life, giving you this ability to believe, giving you this ability to love him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And you might read that and think, that's not what I'm experiencing. Well, you have every reason to experience that because you have all these things in Christ. God does love you and he has caused you to be born again to a living hope. The power of the resurrection is yours. He is guarding your salvation and your inheritance. He will keep you. He has given you faith. Those are all reasons to have a joy that's inexpressible. Your trials are turned right side up, are redeemed and are used for ultimate good. All things work for good for you. These are all reasons for inexpressible joy. These are all truths, but you may not feel it. And that's pretty normal. But I want to take a moment just to think about what we've been doing in Advent. We've been looking at these themes. Faith, love, peace, love, and joy. Faith being the conduit for these other traits, really to experience the, these things, peace, love, and joy. And have you noticed that these three qualities for us are all fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and it goes on, right? So the first fruits are these fruits. And then secondly, have you noticed that, that 
the dimensions of these things are all described in ways that are unmeasurable, right? So the peace that Jesus gives, he says, my peace I leave with you, right? My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. The, the peace of the world is, is brief and passing, fleeting. But the peace of God transcends our understanding. Passes all understanding, right? It's greater than your understanding. It's greater than your situation. It's the peace of God. It's infinite. It's an everlasting peace. It's a great peace. It's beyond your comprehension. It's able to empower you to experience peace even in difficulty. Even when you don't figure it out. Even when your mind's like, I don't know why I should have peace, but somehow I have peace. That's the peace that the, the Bible talks about. We talked about love last week, right? How big is the love of God that's supposed to fill us with all the fullness of God? How big is it? You can answer. Infinite. It's beyond your comprehension. And thus also, these are qualities from the, the Holy Spirit, God himself. Thus also joy is inexpressible. It's not inexpressible because you got it all. It's because it's from God. And he has joy in what he's doing in your life. He has joy in rescuing you for, from your sins. He has joy in working through your life. And through trials in your life, because he knows what it's producing. He knows where it's going. His joy is inexpressible. And the point here is not to, not to drum up our own joy, but to look to the source of joy and love and peace. For time's sake, I have to conclude. I'd love to say some other things. I have examples I could have shared with you of people who have experienced this sort of joy. I'll tell one briefly, I have to. If you could put the picture up of, of Lilani. I've shared this story before. Lilani uh, Jayasinj lives in the southernmost part of Sri Lanka. She's a joy-filled Christian and an active member of her local church. That's, that's a picture of her right there. And an effective witness for Christ to thousands years ago, shortly after she was married, her husband, a Bible school student at the time, was brutally killed in front of her. By local monks hostile to followers of Jesus, she was forced to give up her son and flee from her village. Widowed and living in a simple home with no plumbing, Lalani had few earthly reasons to be joyful and content. This remarkable woman was chosen years later to represent her church for a meeting in the capital city of Columbia uh, to discuss the recent challenges of persecution. She took the all-day trip to, uh, to Colombo, the city, sorry, for the meeting where many churches were gathering for updates and prayer and support. They wanted to strategize on how to respond to the violence. When asked how things were going with her church, she replied, Wonderful! Praise the Lord! Later, she gave a more detailed report telling how the local opposition had that week organized a protest march against her church and then burned the thatched roof of the church. Stunned by the news, someone in the meeting asked why she said everything was wonderful. And this was her reply. Obviously, since the thatch is gone, God must intend to give us a metal roof. She looked at the trial with faith and joy. That is an unworldly faith and joy. And I must say, I think Lalani is someone who's experiencing that joy inexpressible even amidst her trials. That's what the Lord wants to do in our lives. He wants to give us joy inexpressible. He wants us to be filled with the love that's beyond comprehension. He wants us to experience the peace that passes 
understanding. It comes from Him. It's based on truth. It isn't just, it isn't just a fantasy. It isn't just a feeling. It's based on ultimate truth. So you're in a safe place to ask for this. And if you're like me, I think we all are in the same place. We need this. We need that sort of joy. We need that sort of peace. We need that sort of love. So let's just take a minute as we prepare to transition. Sorry that I've taken extra, but as we prepare to transition, and let's ask the Lord. Just ask Him for joy. That joy that's inexpressible beyond anything you'll ever experience and express, He wants to give to you. So let's ask Him, and Pastor Toby will transition us.